their stock price continues to go higher, which is like basically impossible. At this point, it's a paper airplane flying against gravity that has caught <laughs> hurricane force winds to push it up. And we're just not sure how long this hurricane is going to last. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. How's it going, sir? Good, man. How about you? Yeah? You know, doing all right. Doing all right. We got a college football kicked off last week, but real college football between Colorado and and Texas Christian University, the TCU, the Horn Frogs is happening today. So that's really when the season kicks off. So I'm excited about that. So when Colorado comes out on the field in mere hours, Dougals, mm-hmm. Prime they time. will be sporting some new kicks, right? Okay. And that leads us to the most most important part of the episode. Oh, my goodness. A quiz for you on Nike shoes. Oh, All my right? goodness. I'm not good at this kind this? of stuff, but go for it. Go for it. No, this is this is the economics of Nike shoes. I'm not asking you to name, you know, the Jordan Fours, Tar Heel I colors. A, I have a that. beautiful, I have a beautiful pair of Jordan Fours, by the way. But continue. Jordan Fours are great. Yeah. You like the five or the four better? The four. I thought we just Good. covered that. <laughs> Tough morning, man. <laughs> so let's pretend that you're selling a hundred dollar Nike shoe. There's two companies in this equation. There's Nike and there's Foot Locker. It's a classic example of how the economics break down so we're dividing that hundred dollars up between nike's cost to produce cost to market overhead and then footlockers cost um overhead rent everything else yep. and the total profit of each all right so when he guesses on how much it costs nike to produce their average hundred dollar shoe i'd say 15 bucks okay 22 bucks to okay. Okay. Produce the shoe. There's like eleven bucks of total expenses and overheads, five for marketing, and five for freight insurance custom stuff. Basically taking it from somewhere in Asia to somewhere in Europe or the US, right? Yeah, I wasn't thinking about the marketing. So cool. Get that. A little bit of income taxes and then the retailer margin. How much do you think Nike makes on average per hundred dollar shoe they sell? So this is after Foblocker takes its its yeah. cut. Uh, I'm going to say 40 bucks. No, it's about five bucks. Nike makes five, five dollars. Hold on. So you're saying 5% net profit margin? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Now, that's not what's exactly what's going to show up on the PL. In this example, and this example is from soulreview.com based on 2015 and financials. But in this example, they sell the chew to Foot Locker for 50 bucks. So that's the largest part of basically okay. they, they they are selling this to the end customer for 100 bucks, but they're selling it to the retailer for 50 bucks. So, the, so, so you got, in so that you got case, 50 bucks off the top, then you had the 22 you already talked about. Yeah. Right. Then you and got then, 11 for overhead, okay, okay, five okay. for shipping, five for marketing. So you, you get five bucks left for Nike, right? This is obviously why a lot of people are enamored with direct to consumer because if, if you sell a thing on nike.com dude because yeah. there's a reason they're giving you free shipping because <laughs> they're not selling the thing for 50 bucks they're selling the thing for 100 bucks massive difference wow i was there. that was samsonite i i way overestimated the uh the amount of power that a company like nike would have over retailers well and i think this is ever evolving right but let's run with the example so yeah, if yeah, you yeah. Yeah. You buy the thing for 50 bucks. Okay. Um, what's your guess on what their expenses look like and what their uh, net income might be? I mean, I've obviously already failed all this. I'm guessing Foot Locker loses money. Yeah. So this is what's so shocking to me. Foot Locker, based on these financials, again, they're from a 2015 financial statement. I didn't do the analysis, but I'm trusting it. Actually makes six bucks per shoe. Their expenses are only $17 of the $50 they have for margin. And then they do a significant amount of discounting, it looks like. So basically, they're selling the $100 shoes sometimes for $75. Bucks. 
um, but they're still squeezing out six dollars in profit. Isn't that faster? Right. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what that would look like now, eight years later. But that is still, regardless, that is interesting. Hmm. I held Foot Locker about about this time. The finances were just a total mess, but it was dirt cheap, and uh, that turned into a really nice holding for me. Yeah, and obviously, I have never held either of these stocks, or else I wouldn't come out with nonsense like I just did. <laughs> I mean, this is straight up. There's not even, it's just nonsense what I spit out. Well, the the $5 in this example on Nike's side was shocking to me because I know like just from a cursory glance of their financial statement, at least a couple of years back, their profit margins were greater than that. So this is very, I and I didn't set it up appropriately because I should have said like, when a retailer is formally involved, What's the profit margin on a hundred dollar shoe? Still, still, still. That's cool. Thank you. That was like a a proper quiz. Our quizzes are usually about bees in California or pizza places in Alabama. So this was a proper finance oriented quiz. Well played. Very well played. I heard we got some listener mail. We do. Hit that music, Doogles. They fight. All right, this is great listener mail from Adam, fellow value investor who I really like. So, Douglas, I'm going to let you do most of the talking because I don't really have beef with this listener mail, but I expect that you might. He mentions uh, some of the details on CAPE, which we talked about last week in the mean reversion conversation. I don't think I'll go into the details there. Other than I know we've mentioned this on the show before, there were some accounting changes in the early 2000s that are relevant when you're looking at CAPE. CAPE long-term. That's a cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio. Very good points on that front. The fun part, I think, with this listener mail is a real live example. And I don't think we'll get down to the nitty-gritty numbers, but we'll talk through the high-level concepts where he explains that in in some cases for value investing to work, you don't even need mean reversion to happen. Again, huge smile on my face over here. This is like whatever type of bias there's like seven biases here that all relate to me having a smile on my face because it's someone saying value investing works i just love it i think we do need to hit on the points what he stated though because that's what the reaction is going to come to i do you want me to summarize go for it walk us through okay yeah it's actually it's very well laid out and then i'm gonna lean into it mostly because i this is not even about you adam i appreciate you sending listener mail and it's very well thought through i just like even as a vegetarian i still like beef so I'm going to lean into it because that's what I do. So the example is saying, as you as you stated, that the original theory of value investment does not require mean reversion. Here's what he lays out to be illustrative. You have two stocks. One, let's call it stock good. The other one, stock bad. Two identical companies. They each cost the same amount and they each pay a $1 dividend. The dividend is a very important point here. There's an assumption that value investment is is necessarily like flagged on dividends. That's like a really important assumption for this, which I can understand where that comes from, but. Yeah, and that's just, I mean, that's just in this example. I don't think there's a broader point there, but I think using this example helps explain the fact that main reversion is not always necessary. Yeah, but but yes, okay, I'll give give you that, I'll give you that. Okay, so you have the two stocks, they're reinvesting dividends. So the day after you buy good stock, it doubles. The day after, you buy bad, it drops 90%. So the good stock doubles, bad drops 90% and never comes back to its original value. Mm-hmm. If you take these good these good and bad stocks and you go out to the end point of the analysis, there's another 50% drop in bad. So this has gone, I would state, from bad to worse. My words, not Adam's. <laughs> now, you never get this mean reversion. So which stock ends up being worth more? At the end, what Adam's saying is because of this dividend reinvestment in the good stock, you end up with 1.63 shares, each worth $40 per share. So you got about 65 bucks. On the other stock, because it's been dropping so much and you're reinvesting dividends, you wind up with 3,325 shares of bad. Now that $1 per share that you have there is worth $3,325. So he's saying the bad stock has ended up because you've been buying it 
over time is end up worth more. That's the the summary. Did I do it justice? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And this is where this is why I, at the beginning I stated the dividend point is very very important because if you don't have the dividend here, then you have one stock that's gone down to 99% or down to like whatever it is to nothing. And you have another stock that has gone up. And so the dividend is a very important point here. But what he's saying is you never need the price to come back in that point because you are underpaying for that stock. That is the point that Adam's making. And I get that in the dividend world, partially. If you play out the academic example, I think that's true. You also have to assume that this stock that has gone down 90% and then 50% has voted to continue paying its same absolute dollar dividend. The stock started at 20 bucks a share in this example, went all the way down to a dollar a share, and it was still paying a dollar per share dividend. <laughs> um, um, it's pretty extreme. We will give out the full value of our company <laughs> in dividends. Yes, well, that is going uh, to be worth more. Sure, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's obviously an academic example. It's it's a fun academic discussion point, though. It is. Right? It because is. it's very true that, I mean, Dugas, I think your initial reaction was like, this is such hogwash because this is not the world you play in. But there are certain stocks like AT&T used to be one of them. There, there's certain, these deep value ones where basically people are signing up for the dividend and sometimes the dividend's ridiculous. Sometimes the dividend's like eight to 10%. And that, I mean, this is kind of Kohl's right now. The, the stock's gone way down from 60 bucks a share and they haven't touched the dividend and they don't plan on touching the dividend. Then now the, if the share price goes down another 50%, they probably have no choice because you get to the point where people start hollering at you. When your stock performance is so low, there's a reason there's not a standard yeah. like 20% dividend stock out there outside of maybe the REIT world or some other unique mining situations because it's not sustainable for your company. But it's still f a fun example to be like, what are you, why are you actually buying the investment and what downside protection do you have? F fully agree with that because the, again, it's an academic illustrative example and there could be a lot of details behind this that. You could say, oh, that is a wild, undervalued organization. Like if, because it's $20 per share, who knows what the market cap of that is, right? So I'm going to make up something. Let's say it's $20 per share. Market cap is $200 million. And the company has a billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet. You're like, okay, that's strange. And it's kicking out a lot of key cash flow, a free cash flow. And it just keeps pumping out the dividend. And maybe the market hates it for a variety of reasons. It could like there's so many reasons why the market could hate this stock. Yeah, another so, big, decent example here might be like tobacco stocks, where yeah, yeah, yeah. the market for 40 years has been like, well, this company is dying. Like, I, I'm not yeah, yeah, sending yeah, yeah. my capital that way. But the tobacco stocks over here being like, yeah, but I make money. I make money every quarter, every year, and I, I got to do something with that money. And I have to make this attractive for people to buy my stocks. So the easiest way to do that is to throw money back in their hands yep. as rapidly as possible precisely thank you adam really well thought out yeah we love listener mail hit us skippydoogles at gmail.com for more there it is i want to talk tesla i had this crazy remember this crazy hypothesis i had a while back like a year that i said i think electric cars will be more like television sets than they will be like historical old school ice automobiles in terms of pricing hold on Ice, internal combustion ice engine. Ice so, internal combustion engine. Okay, yeah. I was sorry for a second. It's like electric vehicles will be more like televisions than they are like ice. I don't remember that part of the hypothesis. No, I get it. Yep, thanks yep, for yep, clearing yep. that up. Tesla did price cuts cuts again this week. I've been told that in Colorado, there's one new vehicle you can purchase, and this is across electric and internal combustion. That's less than thirty thousand dollars. A Tesla Model 3 now, after a federal tax credit and a Colorado, state of Colorado tax credit, this is true in California and a lot of other states, is like $24,000, Dougals. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's basically becoming the cheapest car you can buy. Now, the federal and state incentives put things out of whack here. But here's what Tesla has also done with their two top models, the Model S and the Model X. The start of the year, the Model S 
list price was $105,000. They've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven price changes this year, which is insane for uh, like a Ford or a Toyota. Yes, <laughs> to one per change month. Your model price. Yeah. And most of those have gone down. The current price of that car is seventy five thousand dollars. Mm. Wow! The Model X started the year at one hundred and twenty one thousand. Same thing, seven price changes. Currently uh, below eighty thousand dollars, which gets you into getting the federal tax credit range. These are like 40 percent cuts, Dougals. And I know Tes- Tesla is run by Musk, and he's a little different, I'll say, in terms of your average CEO and how he approaches things. But this is a brave new world for car price movement. Like I've never seen anything like this in my life. It raises the question for me of what business are they in? And I believe that Tesla views itself, Elon Musk specifically, probably views Tesla as in a different business than the market views Tesla. And there's a place that Elon is taking that company to. That is might be more similar to I'm, I don't know if he's using televisions right as the analogy, but is more similar to a ubiquitous good, let's call it, um, than it is a car company would typically view themselves. I mean, I'd agree with that. Are, is your leap of faith there moving into the subscription revenue and yeah, like basically generating yeah. revenue off people owning the vehicle rather than just the purchase precisely of the, 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 vehicle. The, the the vehicle is a commodity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's much more like an iPhone than it is like an F-150. Yeah. In a different way, it's Apple's business model in a in a different industry. Let, let's continue on a similar theme. Do you know much about electric vehicles like, you know, Lucid or Rivian or? I, I know that the companies exist and I look at their stocks, but I don't. I haven't read much about the companies. Yeah. Themselves. Okay. Well, so like at a high level, like Lucid tried to be ultra premium. Uh, like almost a nicer Tesla um, that sells for well north of 100K, uh, gets 500 miles, like is incredibly aerodynamic. It's kind of the hot thing right now. Well, their price just got destroyed. When your competitor takes their model that is supposed to be comparable to yours and does a 30 or 40% price cut, you li- your company literally goes up in flames unless you find a way to cut your margins that much. And these are startups that are 10 years late to the game almost when you look at Tesla. Like these are new companies. Same with, I'd go with Rivian. I know the Cybertruck doesn't formally have a price yet, but like the people that are buying a Rivian are the people that are also shopping at a Tesla dealership and making a decision between those. And if the Rivian's $90,000, and again, your competitor cuts your price by 30 to 40%, like what does that do for your company? You're the startup guy on the show, but isn't this just part of this? Doesn't his logic have to be like, I'm just destroying all my competitors because I actually can right now. This means my margins are going to get really, really thin and that's going to be tough for me. But also it might mean that I get rid of right now. There's 20 other competitors in the space and I could get rid of 17 just by driving them out on price alone. We could talk about this for a while. It depends. I think the logic that you're putting out makes sense, except when they're not competitors. When th- when there's a different value proposition that someone is getting, let's zoom out into the future. I don't know what this is exactly, but I'm just laying it out conceptually. Yeah. If there's a different value proposition that you end up getting from a Lucid, because maybe it is a they are building a car and they have an end-to-end system that is, I don't know, all well bit together, well built together, and you you have a closed engine kind of like what Apple had versus Microsoft back in the day. I don't know, right? And you are buying that package. Whereas Tesla, if Tesla ends up being a commoditized product that you buy as a shell, but it's more, much more customizable, sure. they, they, they could be, you could coexist. I think is the point. Maybe I shouldn't say they're not competitors because, you know, the ultimate value prop would be the same. But that that's where it starts to, when you can segment the market in that way, you don't necessarily kill the competition. But it's fascinating. For the reason that you stated, it makes the market so much more interesting than it was before. Yeah, a quick story here. One of my neighbors bought a Model 3 three years back, stay, when the going price was like sixty-five to 70000 
the competitor for a model three at that point was like BMW. Yep. It just was, it was, you were like, I'm buying a BMW or I'm buying a Tesla. And now it's literally, I have other neighbors that are like, should I buy a Prius or a model three? Because the price yeah. has con- yeah, gone yeah, down yeah. so much. It's just fascinating to me. I, I just can't get over it. Who thought that cars were going to become like, if you go back, I don't know, 15 years ago, that cars were going to be such an interesting business like they are right now. It's super cool. I'm reading When the Heavens Went on Sale right now, which is an Ashley Vance book written about the space race. It's called, so it's all the the organizations, companies at all that have been getting into space for the last period of time. Uh, Ashley Vance also wrote a book on uh, Tesla slash Elon. And it is, it's interesting, like relevant, it's relevant for this conversation because of the way that, just going to talk about Elon for a second with it. Elon has changed the way that full industries like space are even viewed. And I think that that's where cars have also happened. It, it like rejiggers the way that America, or the way that the world, uh, I don't know why I just said America, the way that the world uh, views cars. It's super cool. I'm actually not that into it, but I think it's cool intellectually. <laughs> Can I shift to something I am into? Yes. So I came across on the Twitters. Or whatever it's called. I came across this 2006 uh, guest lecture by Lee Lu. Lee Lu is, he's one of the favorite investors of the best investors is the way that I would describe him. Uh, so he's he's not well known out in the like broader world like a Warren Buffett typically would. But if you talk to a Warren Buffett or Howard Marks or... Seth Klarman and when Lee Lu is like who comes up and it's like the rapper that Drake listens to. <laughs> sure. Come on. It's the rapper that Drake keeps in his golden toilet bowls or whatever that he, yeah, that he buys. exactly. So it's the Lee CD that he has in his Birkin bag. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Kill me. So Lee Lu went and talked to Columbia business school in 2006. That's what this, that's what this clip's from. It's like an hour and 40 minutes of what I would call gold for a variety of reasons. My favorite part about this is Lilu is, he doesn't state this, but I'm going to say disappointed at one point in this group that he's talking to. This is my, this is my favorite part. It's like half the 30 minutes of the thing is him calling the Columbia business students dumb basically yeah. I, I just loved it he's like you can't do this math in your head like what and then bruce greenberg teach uh greenberg am i saying that or right greenwald uh, maybe it's something like that i can't remember but it's greenwald like yeah there we go he he's like yelling at the professor basically like what are you teaching <laughs> these students they don't know anything i just yeah. love this because if i was in that class i would like they, they also didn't do the homework he asked him to do i would have been like all over this doogles yeah. i would have had my notes would have been like seven pages long and these guys didn't come across it it wasn't a very impressive performance and my my interpretation of his of lilu's facial expressions was first it was shock like i think there was a moment where he first went maybe i'm not asking the question and the question was what is the market cap of this company <laughs> that was the question by the way and i think he was like maybe i'm not asking the question right at least just from my the way his facial expression looked to me. And then at some point he went, no, I'm Lilu. I understand how to ask what a market cap is. Why don't y'all know how to do this? And he, he says, he's like, if you can't do this type of quick analysis in your head in like split second, you will never make it in this business. Straight up, just like just throws that out there, which I thought was powerful. And then I feel like that was a bit of a turning point in the full conversation where he he just became more declarative and blunt oh he was really blunt to learn he was he's really blunt and really confident uh the the two points around disappointment where there was the first one at brown market cap and there was another point toward the very end of the talk where he brought up that the most fascinating businesses for him are the ones where the advantage of the business just gets stronger and stronger the more the business goes on and he says what are examples of that and people were throwing out examples and he kept basically nodding. He was like, yep, yep, yep. And then finally, someone says, 
are you agreeing with all of these? Because it wasn't clear whether he was just appeasing, agreeing or what. Are you agreeing with all of these? And he said, well, you're basically just reciting Warren Buffett's portfolio. Can you come up with some that are your own thoughts? And I was like, bam! Not that he needed a mic drop, but it was kind of like a, it was more like one of those mics that is on a cord, like a mic swing around and smack people on the face with it. I think it was a phenomenal, phenomenal wake up call for folks. So those are two points I like. There are a few others, but I'm going to pause. Uh, besides that, which was a really fun chuckle. I loved, he, he broke down Timberland as a company. Yeah. The shoe manufacturer, right? Not not the rapper. And it's the the shoes that the rapper wears. Yeah, Going back true. to our drinking analogy. <laughs> that is true. So this is from memory. I don't have great notes here. Uh, so help me out, Douglas. But he walks through an investment he made that what went up 10 plus times. I mean, just crushed. It was like and 7x in two years. It was something like that. It was Timberland. And basically, they had had solid profits for a long time. It was really small. I think it was two hundred million in market cap, something like that. And it was entirely like all the voting rights were owned by the family. And because it was profitable, the family didn't even need money on the capital markets. So the there were some lawsuits in play. Effectively, all the lawsuits said is the management team doesn't give me any any um, guidance on future revenues or anything else because. The family and the leader of the company just got frustrated with dealing with the nonsense of having conference calls with analysts. And exactly. I love that. My my favorite people in the world are much more like Buffett in terms of, I don't care what any of these analysts think about my company. Like, watch the dollars roll in the door. Like, I'm not going to tell you about XYZ or our strategy for this or what expense reductions we're currently running. I'm just going to show you that my business crushes and then you're going to throw money at me. Like the, those are my favorite management teams and they're very tough to find. So anyway, this management team just got sick of playing the game and that had alienated a lot of customers and really hurt the stock price. Made this thing a bargain. I uh, This is where I don't remember, but the price that he was able to buy in was like, what, less than half of book? Something, I mean, something like that. It was yeah. dirt cheap, uh, despite the fact that they had Strong return on equity, great cash position. It's everything you want. So he actually cusses a lot in the lecture, <laughs> but this is where he talks about the size of his position. And he basically just says <laughs> it was freaking massive. Yeah. The other thing yeah. he there was did, a, there was no there, there wasn't a quantity that he stated. It was all like when when you can only when a number's so big, the only way to describe it a is blank words. Ton. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A blank ton. <laughs> So, so anyway, he sees very quickly, like, uh, I'd say within five minutes of going through the financials based on the talk that this thing's a massive deal. So his question then goes to, I need to know the character of the people that run this company because there's either fraud going on or I'm making, I'm buying a blank ton of this, right? That's basically where he yeah. went to within five minutes because he's so gifted at like, the analytics side of the financial analysis. This is where he's a little different than maybe me or you, Dougals. He happens to call around, figures out that he, the son of the CEO of that company is on a board that is a company that one of his friends owns and pulls some strings to get on that same board, befriends the guy, uh, simply like lies to him as it, it sounded to me, Dougal. So he basically uh, pretends to like the guy when he really would just wants to know if his dad is stealing from the company or not. Once he figures out that they're a stand-up family, he puts a ton of money there, makes a seven-plus mm -hmm. X return, and they the become rest real is friends. History. I mean, like no-brainer investment. And it was the where the seven X came from. He said there was multiple expansion, so it went from a five to fifteen X price to earnings ratio while earnings were growing 30% a year. So you had multiple expansion and fast earnings uh, expansion. Super cool. He then, can I transition from Timberland? You got more? Yeah. Uh, so then he then says, and th this point is similar-ish to what you talked about with Buffett, but with it's either a more nuanced and finer point version or it's, or may maybe it's just different. He said that over the course of your decades-long 
career, if that's what you have in investing, you're likely to get 10 to 15 high conviction opportunities. So this is where it's different than what we brought up before is that he's not saying that you'll only invest in 10 to 15 companies ever. He's saying there are 10 to 15 opportunities that are the ones that you throw everything into. Like that that's basically what he's saying over decades. And Timbaland was not was I don't think even made that bar because one of the things he said was he was like, "Yeah, you get a 5-6-7x return. That's cute." I'm talking about the ones that are going to pay your entire I'll call it fund as you would in the VC, like you're getting 10,000 times your size. Those are the ones. And he wouldn't name those. Like he, he said, though, like the names that you are hearing here are not the names that are my highest conviction socks. You won't know what those are. And do you remember this, this when he was talking about this? Yeah, I don't remember the 100 plus X conversation, but he was not talking about anything that he was currently invested yep. in. Uh, so all these examples were long ago and he had already exited. Yeah, exactly. And someone, this came out even further when someone asked him, what's your sell criteria? And he said, his sell criteria used to be, if I wouldn't buy it today, then I sell it. And then for these high conviction stocks, especially, it changed. And he started viewing this as they're, they're effectively like a forever hold. Not exactly that. But what he said, he started thinking about is he said, if you view continuing to hold a stock as you're getting a 30 to 40% loan from the government, and what he's saying there is if I sold, I would have to pay capital gains tax. Yeah. Saying if you're if you view that and you look at your return on invested capital, which for the types of companies talking about is a 50 to 100% return on invested capital. He goes, what I'm getting is an interest-free loan that would normally be a 30 to 40% like cut with 50 to 100% returns. For these high conviction stocks, I'm able to see 10 plus years out of what these stocks are going to be able to do. And how am I going to turn down a 50 to 100% interest-free loan from the government <laughs> compounded over that period of time? Now, this is a this is some like next level do not try this at home type stuff that he is talking about. Because the level of when he says high conviction, going back to the meeting of the neighbors and joining boards and all this stuff, he's saying that you know everything about accurate and complete information, I believe is the phrase he used. You know everything about these organizations and the industries and or he knows everything about these organizations and industries. So that's what he's making. It's like mind blowing. Two, th two important points to add. One, he says that you're perfectly allowed to have a high conviction position and then sell. Like then find out new information, realize the hypothesis you had was wrong, watch yep. the thing go down 20 to 30% and sell. So that it's um it's high conviction until it's not, right? In yeah, 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 most yeah. cases I'm sure it's like but he allows himself to take in new information. The other thing I loved is he doesn't hire any uh I'll call it professional trained and analysts. Like yeah. he doesn't hire yeah. people from Columbia Business School. He says it's too much common sense, and that I forget the exact phrasing he used, but like he just basically wants someone who's smart off the street. That's like, how does this company make money? Why? How is that sustainable? Like he was great at asking the relevant questions and not getting lost in the details. Yeah. Basically, he'd look at five metrics on the balance sheet and run with an investment hypothesis like is really impressive to watch it's super impressive very much recommend it's an hour and 40 minutes so that's a lot of time but for those that like to go deep on this stuff highly recommend this it, it is fascinating to watch how his brain was working during this and, and it's in a a conversational dialogue with a class and so there's a lot more depth that can come from that as well it was like super cool highly recommend it we'll put on the sub stack on on Monday, skippydougals.substack.com. So you can go and watch it. Yeah. All right. You know, I've been fascinated with NVIDIA and their stock price continues to go higher, which is like basically impossible. At this point, it's a paper airplane flying against gravity that has caught <laughs> hurricane force winds to push it up. And we're just not sure how long this hurricane is going to last. Q2 revenue was, was off the charts more than 
anyone thought possible, certainly more than I thought possible. But there's an interesting tidbit that came out this week. The large majority of that revenue came from just two customers. And to me, Dougals, this has always been my hypothesis with NVIDIA. It's like you've had a few crazy people that wrote blank checks. It showed up all at once on top of this hype cycle with artificial intelligence. And like, I just don't know if the, I can't imagine the blank checks keep coming their way. I mean, it's also, it gets back to what you mentioned, was that a few months ago, I think when, with the insider selling, if your organization and granted they have to, they need to uh, sign up to sell depending on where they are in the company, like a good amount ahead of time. So it's not like you can just do it that big um, on a whim. But if you have a company that is having a magnitude, it's a billions and billions of dollars that you are bringing in every quarter. So your company ends up being worth over a trillion and you're bringing in a quarter that is an order of magnitude larger than a quarter before, than a year before that same quarter. And that is a sustainable engine of a flywheel that's about to take off. You don't sell. Well, and and you might even buy. And at last I looked, I didn't look this week, but there had been no buys in the 400s and a ton of sales. These executives are smart. And what and and again, history tells us, even with their huge Q2 reporting, the P is still in the 200 something. Like only. Yeah. It no, no, no. <laughs> it came down from 280 to 230 or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This isn't even worth talking about. It's just the garbage yeah. continues. I don't have anything to say with it. And, and and I should correct myself. When I said you don't sell, I meant you wouldn't see sales in massive waves across all executives <laughs> like you like you saw. <laughs> a person like might sell. You know, you take money off the table. Like that's the thing that happens. But when you see all of the executives <laughs> selling, it's very different. And this this uh, makes me think about our AMC conversation that we had before, although they're for very, very different companies, very different places and everything. But that's another case. If you're buying options in AMC and all of the executives are selling, and in fact, the CEO held zero shares, <laughs> yeah. they didn't just sell, they sold everything in AMC. That's not in the video. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, yeah, but what's familiar is, is the bubble territory, like yeah, yeah, yeah. evaluation for AMC Back when the CEO sold every dime of everything he owned in that company was in a similar bubble territory. Pretzels. I'm gonna talk about pretzels. Specifically Auntie Anne's. That stuff's delicious, man. You get all you get that uh that cinnamon sugar up on there. Oh yeah, my goodness. Good. You you dip it in that glaze. I don't think I've had one in like a decade or something. It's been a long time, but it's still it's like it was yesterday. It's like it was yesterday. I'm the drive only over problem to the mall right after this. Get some. You're gonna have yeah. an orange Julius afterwards? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there was a pretzel shop worker, 23 years old, part-time employee of Auntie Anne's. And what he did was he opened himself a brokerage account. He claimed he was earning twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars a year, which like this it's interesting because the fraud starts here, and it's not like he claimed that he was making a million dollars a year. <laughs> He claimed that he was making 25 to 50K a year and he was making a, less than $5,000 a year. So that was where the first, the first bit of information, unchecked right by the organization. Then he linked this brokerage account to a bank account that had less than $1 in it. Then what did he do with that? They then allowed him to deposit a million dollars into this account. Like, so, so like initiate a million dollars Okay. Who is they? The, the brokerage. I, I don't know what brokerage it is, but so he, to recap, he opens this brokerage account. He says he makes 25 to 50 K. He links it to a bank account that has less than a dollar in it. He then proceeds to open up deposits or start deposits for a million dollars into this account because he started those deposits of a million dollars. They said, immediately, you can have access to $200,000. He then took that $200,000 and wisely invested it in Apple, GameStop, NVIDIA, AMC, and Tesla. $85,000 in Apple, $78,000 in GameStop, $22,000 in NVIDIA, $13,000 in AMC. There's lots of problems <laughs> with, with all of this. Then they, they got wise, like 
you know, a couple days later. So they took control over the account, liquidated all the holdings, and the brokerage made 7K. So in the end, the, the, the brokerage made some money because the stocks happened to go up. Whatever. The point of this is well, we've been talking about margin and whatnot here. And this just isn't even, I, I don't know what category you put this in that's just not straight up fraud. But he, this guy said, it wasn't fraud. It was just a joke. Okay. I, I would say clear him because that sounds, that sounds about right. Good. This brokerage be anyone but Robin Hood. Like, <laughs> exactly. It's like, this doesn't sound like fidelity. You know, it, it, it doesn't sound like Goldman I mean, Sachs. Listen, but... I understand you can make 30K and be sitting on 10 million in cash. I, I understand that happens. It's probably not super rare. I don't, I don't really understand the desire to like, it, it's got to be Robin Hood because if someone truly has a million bucks, just like wait the two and a half days for the money to actually clear into the account and then let them make some trades. They already opened a brokerage account with you. They already are apparently funding it with a million dollars. That's good for your company. I don't really see the need for the 200K advance. I do enjoy the the faith. If you put everything else aside, <laughs> the on, on, on his part, if you put everything else aside, the capital allocation itself is interesting. <laughs> like, wh what is the, where's the place for you of your 200K that you'll get access to. So $85,000 in Apple. Okay. $78,000 in GameStop. Okay. You're like, that's okay. Now I'm really curious about what your like investing strategy. I'm going to use the word strategy here is. There's no investing strategy <laughs> here. <laughs> None whatsoever. 22,000 NVIDIA, 13,000 AMC. Okay. It gets more confusing. And then $700 in Tesla. Like what? What? <laughs> Anyway, okay. The, my question is, what if, like, what if he would have day traded? What if he would have actually made like a thousand bucks, sold everything, closed the account? He almost he, did would it. Would that be his thousand bucks? He all he almost did. I, I actually I don't know. I don't know what happens. I assume they come after him because they never they never would have seen the money at that point. Like there was never a point where he had money in with their brokerage. Yeah, totally. So I don't know. I don't know. All right. Next quick hit. I want to talk about Nick Majuli, who we've discussed a couple times on here. Uh, well, actually, we, we discussed a bunch of times over the, the years here. But recently, there have been a couple times where we brought up posts of Nick's and went, this just doesn't sound like Nick. Nick has these well thought out, balanced posts that are really interesting to read and then there are these posts there was one that came out in like an unnecessarily angry tone i would say uh and then i can't remember what the other one was but we we kind of just said what the dilly be at what came out this week well you didn't tell that story right like oh, okay, two sorry. weeks ago Dougals was on the podcast being like nick if if you're being held against your will <laughs> call <laughs> us you have like code words or something <laughs> Yeah. You're pretty dramatic about Nick's change in writing fortunes here. It seemed it seemed like something was going on. That's why something <laughs> bad was going on. Uh, we we like Nick and we still like Nick, but uh, I don't have the tweet in front of me, Douglas. But he basically said he had uh, taken on an adventure for several months. I think for the past nine months of trying to write to increase his Google page rankings rather than write things that he was passionate about, which I think is the stuff we're used to uh, years ago from Nick that is is typically really quality stuff. It's fascinating to me. It, it is, because there, there was a part of me, for all the reasons you described, I was kind of like, is this, is it just us? Like, am, am I being, a, let me talk about Dougals. Am I being a hater right now on something that maybe yeah. I've just gotten, I've just become a curmudgeon, this is the way the world is. And then... The way that this the tweet that you were talking about comes out is I have a confession to make. I went, oh, okay. So there was there is a there there. There was something going on. Nick, I applaud you for a few reasons. Applaud you for all the writing that you've done. One, it's hard to write that much over this length of time, including a book. So phenomenal. Your writing's been historically awesome. Couple hiccups, maybe a few hiccups recently. But coming out with something like this, that's character. 
it's a lot of character to be able to come and well, I guess probably about 140 characters. But to come out with something like this, a serious character. So I applaud you. My um, favorite uh, experiment that's happening in real time is uh, Musk on Twitter slash X uh, starting to write checks to the creators. I don't know how much you see of that, Diggles, but it has changed people's behavior. I mean, uh, the joke in a lot of organizations I've worked in about salespeople has always been that they're coin-operated, right? It's kind of made these content creators on Twitter coin-operated as well. And you see all sorts of changes in how and what people post to try and increase engagement because that actually increases a page check, yeah. a paycheck, excuse me. And it's very much like a YouTube model. I found it fascinating to watch because um, if you go back to Munder, Munger talking about tell me the incentives and I'll, I'll tell you what the behavior will be. What Musk did on Twitter is change the incentives and you almost immediately, like I'm talking within 15 minutes of the first paychecks hitting, saw people's behavior change. Yeah. Um, at this point, I don't know if it's good or bad. I think it's probably bad uh, because there's more people putting out, in some cases, falsehoods simply for engagement. But it's fascinating to watch. I think we're in fascinating times. That's all I got to say. Fascinating times. And that wraps up with my, my last quick hit here around consumers. I know you all have heard me talk, you heard me talk several times about the state of consumers. I do not feel positive about where we're going there, but I hope that I'm wrong. But then evidence keeps coming out. I'm like Dick Tracy up in this joint, seeing evidence. So a couple things that came out, we'll put these on the sub stack. We passed a, a trillion dollars in credit card debt for the first time, which an absolute figure like that doesn't necessarily say anything by itself, but we passed trillion dollars in credit card debt. Yeah. Interest rates on average have gone from a little over 16% to a little over 22% over the past year. So the combination of those two could be kind of bad. Yeah, just credit card interest rates to clarify. Yeah. Yes, yes, sorry. Just credit card interest rates. That was not the Fed funds rate. Although that's what you want, Skippy. <laughs> Skippy wants to wake up one morning and see that the Fed funds rate is 22%. We're going to talk about that in a second. We are. Uh, what people have started doing, it seems, is opening up new lines of credit to pay off old ones. So you get that through 0% interest new credit cards. And then also through loans that people are pulling out. And what studies have shown is that when people do this, they end up building their balance up to what it was before within 18 months. So that's not positive. There's an estimate by, that by Q2 of next year, the entirety of households pandemic war chests, as they're calling of cash, will be spent. And banks are greatly slowing down loans that they're giving out. So the summary of this is people's debts are high. Banks are saying, we're going to be more reluctant in the future to give you more loans to pay off those debts and cash is running out. And so something's got to give. I hope the thing that gives is spending. Like that is really what I, because if spending gives at, at a non-cliff rate, that can be helpful for the consumer. It will not be helpful necessarily for the for GDP and economic growth, but help with the consumer. If it's a cliff, meaning if we just keep spending, spending, spending until they can't spend anymore, that's going to hurt the economy and the consumer. And I hope that doesn't happen. That's it. All right. You, you talked about interest rates. Mm -hmm. I'm going to piggyback off of that. Uh, hypothetical, it's, it's tough to state. But Dougals, what does the, let's call it the 10-year um, treasury interest rate have to be for you to be comfortable moving all your equity investments to bonds? What rate? For me, that be is it ten percent? Is it fifteen percent? Is it twenty percent? For Doodles, if you could get a guaranteed return backed by the U.S. government for ten years, how high does the rate have to be for you to think that that's the best deal available? You're asking for Doodles, yeah, for you, yeah. Well, why? That's a good question. I would probably say somewhere thirteen percent at least. See, I'm in the twelve to fifteen as well. I mean, fifteen. If someone was like. Hey, you don't have to deal with any of the turbulence of the stock market. And I'm going to give you a 15% return, and that's going to be guaranteed for the next 10 years. I'm going, 
all right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, like, <laughs> 15 is definitive. I wouldn't go 100% just because I'd have like, but it'd be like 95 and then I'd play well, around. I mean, my other money but, would be like playing with. Is, yeah, exactly. What happens then is, is then if uh, the 10 years at 15% stocks get so cheap that I'd be oh, doing some analysis yeah. on the side where I'd be like, this is at a PE of two with an ROE of 27 and like balance sheet is gold and i'm going this is a 50 percent year over year return so eventually the money yeah. pulls back because that's how these things work but you come back in like macho man talking about oh yeah that is exactly what you would do i know that, that that'd be quite a world i'd wonder what the heck else is going on if you're offering me 15 percent free money person on the phone claiming to be from nigeria i'd wonder what else is going on <laughs> well it would mean things got pretty tough I mean, yeah, yeah, that's not an easy investing environment. No, oh, it's not 1981, 1982. That's what that is. Ooh. Yeah, that is that's an interesting question, though. But I, yeah, I think that's right. That's the number that came to my head somewhere around 13%. Makes sense around the same place. 13 is pretty juicy, too. And like once they, once we get north of 10, I think I'm shifting more cash that way. Again, it's, none of this is 100%, but like. I could be pretty comfortable having a decent chunk of my portfolio making 10% risk free. I know it's not six. What's interesting. <laughs> cause we're there. <laughs> yeah. Cause we're there. What's interesting is if you go back, what was that? Two years ago when the I bonds hit nine, was it nine, six, yeah. nine, eight, something like that. Let's just call it 10% mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes. When that hit 10%, I'm trying, I'm like, what I'm thinking through is there's, there was the limit. Where you could only, you can, I'm saying only as if this is not a lot of money. I know it is a lot of money, but you could only put 10K into I bonds yeah. per year. And what I'm thinking back to is if that limit wasn't there, what would that have looked like? And I don't know because the limiter was there. So like that never was a thought exercise that I went through. But it's kind of fascinating. If that was unlimited, what would have happened? Yeah. And so that's even a different time where your, um, standard interest rate at like bank was less than one percent where now yeah. it's five-ish percent yeah, right yeah, yeah. so exactly it, um yeah yeah i know i was maxima i mean it's a, a interesting one i wouldn't have gotten with 100 percent of my allocation there but i certainly would have put more than the 10k yeah mm -hmm. yeah it would have been very substantial cool i think that's right, a wrap, guys, that's us, a wrap right? this week yeah hope you enjoyed the um usual banter Hit us, listener mail, at Skippy Dougal's premium to subscriptions to get the show early. It's only seven bucks a month. Um, supercast dot, or SkippyDougal's.Supercast.com. Uh, Substack is a great place to get all the articles we talk about on a weekly basis. That's SkippyDougal's.Substack.com. Twitter, at Skippy Dougal's. You can find us all over the place. You can even go to SkippyDougal's.com if you're looking to hunt down any of those things I just mentioned. Um, we'll see you next week. Thank you.